2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Lord has laid this verse upon my heart for the last few weeks, and it has been a blessing in times of prayer and meditation, and I hope and pray the Lord will grant me the grace this morning to proclaim its truth to you that we all might be encouraged in the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Our text is found in verse 7, but I want to read from verse 1 down to verse 8. Paul speaking here gives a very solemn charge to Timothy. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. That's a mighty charge. He brings his case before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. What an exhortation. For I am now ready to be offered. He knows and realizes martyrdom faces him. And the time of my departure is at hand. Now listen to his words. He exhorts Timothy to look at him and his testimony and his example. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, because of what he just said in verse 7, henceforth there is laid up, reserved for me, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. These words of the Apostle Paul must have been very confusing to many, especially his adversaries. For when one considers the situation and circumstances surrounding Paul at the time of his pinning down these words, namely imprisonment under Nero, facing certain martyrdom, And not to mention how Paul, a few verses later, would declare that all men forsook him. These words of the Apostle Paul might appear as bizarre and even insane. He speaks of victory. He speaks of a crown. He speaks of his departure. He speaks of confidence and security in Christ. And yet, everything surrounding Paul, according to the worldly standards, looks like failure and defeat. 
Yet, beloved, everything in this present world concerning the Christian's life seems strange and even odd and insane to the carnally mind. They look at us and they figure or they think, you have no victory, you have no joy, you have no confidence in life, you have sufferings and trials and imprisonment. When you look at Paul, outwardly his circumstances spoke of failure and defeat. The world's understanding of success and achievements in this present life are nothing like those of what the Scripture speaks of the Christian life. Though Paul was facing imprisonment and certain martyrdom, though Paul says he was forsaken by all men except the Lord. We'll speak of that later. Yet Paul says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, would give him at, the day, at that day and not to him only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The world seen imprisonment and death and men forsaking Paul. Paul seen the Lord in a crown of righteousness. How often we get our eyes off the wrong things as Christians in this world? How often do we look at our circumstances and situations in this present life and judge our happiness and our joy and our contentment according to our circumstances and situations and not according to Christ and the things of God? The world didn't understand these words of the Apostle Paul. They thought he was insane, maybe even ludicrous. Yet Paul says, you don't understand the Christian life. And he wants Timothy to understand. The world sees us differently. You know, the rich man, the Bible says, fared sumptuously every day in this present life. While the beggar, Lazarus, laid at his feet full of sores and desiring or content merely to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Many people miss that passage of Scripture. It's not he desired not merely or was content merely with crumbs, but the crumbs that fell from the table. You can't get any lowly than that. The crumbs that fell from the table. He was content with that. Yet when both died... The rich man, being in hell, lifted up his eyes, being in torments, while the beggar, Lazarus, lie in Abraham's bosom. What a difference. So the world looked at beggarly Lazarus and pitied him. And coveted the riches of the rich man. Yet in the end, who was rich and who was poor? Beloved, the poorest Christian in this life is more wealthier than the wealthiest in this world. Do you know that? To the carnally minded, the Christian's life in this present world often gives the appearance of failure or defeat. Paul's imprisonment, Peter's denying of Christ thrice. Even Christ's own crucifixion to the world those were apparent failures and defeats. 
All these things gave an appearance of failure and defeat, yet in the hands of God, these were made occasions not only to glorify God, but worked great grace in the hearts of His children. Paul's imprisonment would bring him a crown. Peter's denying of Christ would assure his love for Christ. And I won't even go into what Christ's crucifixion brought us. The world looks at all those three things as failures. Yet in the eyes of God, they were everything but failures. Paul wants Timothy to understand this. Paul wants us as God's people to understand this. That no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. It was these divine truths and more Beloved, that motivated and drove the Apostle Paul throughout his Christian life and in the face of grace opposition to fight a good fight, to finish his course and to keep the faith. And with these words, Paul would seek to motivate and exhort Timothy in the solemn charge he just gave him in verses 1 to 5. He gives him, and this is a great charge if you consider, a very solemn charge before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would use himself as an example. He's not just telling Timothy to do something that Paul's not himself experienced or has been aware of or lived in his own life. He tells Timothy in the shadow of this great exhortation, look at my own life. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, or henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Timothy, I'm not just giving you words of exhortation. I'm telling you from practical experience, my own experience with Christ, to keep this charge. Follow my example, Timothy, is what Paul is saying. Over in chapter 3, verse 10 through 15, uh, 17. I want you to see what Paul does here. Listen to what Paul does or says to Timothy, chapter 3 of the same book, in verses 10 to 17. But thou hast fully known my doctrine. Listen to him. Timothy, you've known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. He gives the Lord glory, but he says, Paul, or Peter, or Timothy, you've known me. Listen to me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Watch this. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Do you see what Paul's saying to Timothy? Paul is not giving Timothy vainless or 
vain exhortations. He's saying, Timothy, look at me. I'm the example. I'm showing you that I've known this, and I've learned this by experience. You've seen my life. You've seen my doctrine. You've seen my long-suffering, my charity, my patience, my persecutions. You've learned things from me. You've been assured of them, and you know me. It sounds as though Paul is exhorting Timothy to look to him instead of Christ, and yet that is not true. Paul is showing Timothy by way of an example. Why is that important? Because a lot of people today live their Christian life simply intellectually. They speak of things they know not of. That's why a preacher cannot be a novice. Because he'll fall into snares of Satan. Too often Christians speak the truths of God they have no understanding or no experience of. They merely speak the truths of God intellectually. Paul said, I'm not an intellectual here. I'm telling you, you've known me, you've seen me, you've known these things. Let this encourage and let this inspire you in this charge I'm giving you. Beloved, as we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we should aspire to be examples to younger believers. Not that they should find their faith in us, but by, by looking unto us, they should be able to see how Christ has worked in our lives. We need more older, elder Christians to be examples to the younger Christians. That's what Timothy's doing. Timothy's not diverting everything from Christ to him, Tim, or Paul. Paul's not diverting everything from Christ to him. Paul's not saying, look to me, I'm the epitome of Christianity. Paul's saying, look what the grace of God has done in me. I'm telling you these things because I've experienced them and I know them. That is hard and difficult in this day and age of young believers who simply want to be intellectual. Paul would not charge Timothy with something he himself did not strive to keep. Yet, like I said, we have a generation of believers today who are more interested in the intellectual aspects of the Christian life. I think we could place that under itching ears. Oh, you went to college. Oh, you've learned Greek and Hebrew. Oh, you're esteemed. You're... Oh, let me tell you what the Word of God really means. Well, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, I went through four years of college. Well, that's fine, and I'm not diminishing college. I think that's itching years myself. Paul says, I'm telling you, Timothy, these things because I've experienced the grace of God in my own life, and you've seen the evidence of it in my life. There's even one passage of Scripture where Paul, Paul says, he says verbally, he says clearly, he says, follow me. Paul tells Timothy, be an example unto the flock. Older Christians should be an example unto the flock. They should be an example in their actions, their words, their character. Too many believers today are interested in the intellectual aspects of the Christian life and not so much on the actual practice and experience of those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Let me give you an example of this. When I was in the Army, there was a, in our platoon, we had a platoon sergeant and we had a platoon lieutenant. 
I remember the sergeant's name. I don't remember the lieutenant's name, which tells you something already. But Sergeant Beard <clears throat> was a black guy, and he went and he served through the time of Vietnam. He had experienced warfare. He'd seen battle. He'd been through it. I would follow that man anywhere. His experience alone of the battlefield and of warfare gave me confidence in him that he wasn't one that just spoke a good fight. He lived it and experienced it. The lieutenant, on the other hand, came out of West Point, read every book they had in the, uh, in the library on our barracks about military. In fact, I remember I was standing there one day when the uh, sergeant in, in charge of the library, lieutenant was asking him if he had any new books, and he turned around and he said, Lieutenant, you've read every book we've had. The man was intellectually very smart and astute, but I would not follow him across the street in time of battle. He knew nothing of what he was talking about. It was up here, but he lacked common sense and experience. We was out on maneuvers one day, and there was an open field, and went on maneuvers nine months out of the year, but there was an open field there, and about a quarter of a mile down the road, there was a tree line that kind of went over, and the lieutenant says, okay, Shepard, if you had to cross this field, how would you do it? I said, I'd go down the tree line and go across. No, 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 there's no tree line there. I said, no, it's right there. It's right. How would you cross this open field? I said, I wouldn't. It opened fire. I'd go down the tree. I mean, and he couldn't make sense. He got upset at me because I said that. I said, well, there's a tree line there. I'm not going to just. The guy really had all the intellectual you could, under... you, could, you could possess, but he had no experience. Paul is not stating, I know these things intellectually. I'm telling you this is what the Greek and Hebrew says. Paul says, you know my doctrine. He says, you know. You know my manner of life. You know my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, charity, patience, persecution, afflictions. You know all those things. You've been eyewitness to those things. You've learned things. You've been assured of them. And you know whom thou hast learned them from. So therefore, he gives them this charge and says, therefore, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I have so much more regard for those preachers and Christians who have endured for years the spiritual battle and went through a lot of things, trials and afflictions and troubles, than anybody that will come up with an intellectual debate about Scripture. Show me somebody who's lived the life, and I have high regards and respects for them. Yet in this day and age, it has nothing to do with that. The wisdom of age Christians are denounced and ignored and rejected. And let me tell you something. I'd much rather follow a pastor or a Christian that has been years in the spiritual battle and has come to know and experience the truth of God themselves than some theological egghead that just simply can declare to me what the doctrine of sovereignty or what the Greek or Hebrew says about a certain, certain passage of Scripture. Give me someone like Paul who's lived to experience the truths of God themselves and be able to relate that by word and by example. Would you not? I would. That's why even though I have differences with some preachers, 
and all preachers have differences. I highly respect those that have been years in the ministry and have been through deep trials and afflictions. I respect them. I respect them highly. Even pastors that I've known here in this in Coleman over the past few years who we've had differences, I highly respect them. Highly respect them. Because they've endured and they continue to preach the word. So Paul is not trying to tell Timothy to look to him. Paul's saying, look at me what the grace of God has done. You've known it. You've seen it. And follow that example. I'm telling you, it works what the Scripture says. Paul, in just one verse, describes the Christian life in this present life in three different ways. He says, first of all, there's a fight to be fought. I have fought a good fight. Secondly, there's a course, he said, to be finished, not merely run. (laughs) People talk about running the course. You can run the course, but the question is, can you finish it? In 40 years of being a Christian, I've heard a lot of Christians boast about how they're running the course. But I can tell you many, many more never finished it. It's not how you begin, it's how you end. It's not merely running the course, can you finish it? Paul said, I didn't run the course. Paul said, I've finished my course. The one God gave me and placed before me, Paul said, I've finished it. Because my departure is at hand. I'm ready to go. I have finished my course. question of it is, we can talk about running the course all day long. Do we really have a desire to finish it? And thirdly, and this is a strange one for many, Paul says, I've kept faith. Paul is not advocating here that in any way, form, or fashion he can work or merit anything or contribute anything to Christ's salvation. He's not saying that he can contribute to his sanctification. Paul's not saying, he's, Paul's not talking about a work salvation here. Paul's talking about grace working in him and what effects it produces in a believer. He's not talking about earning favor with God. He's defining what the work of grace does in every true believer. It gives us that spirit to fight, a good fight. It sets a course in front of us. Run the race that is before thee, laying aside those weights that easily, uh, Hebrews 12. And Paul says, I've kept the faith. Well, wait a minute, I didn't think it was in Paul's power to keep the faith. Isn't the faith a gift of God? Paul is not talking about that kind of faith. Faith is a gift. He's talking about the faith concerning the doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've kept it. What does he mean by keeping it? We'll have time to look into that. Yet not today, but three aspects of the Christian life. Paul puts it in one verse. Fight a good fight. Finish your course. Keep the faith. First of all, Paul declares there's a fight to be fought. Now listen to me. I really need you to listen to me because I think and I hope and pray that this will encourage you. There's a fight to be fought. One Paul says is a good fight. Why does he say that? Because there's a difference. He's not simply saying I'm fighting. I'm fighting a good fight. 
good fight. It's a good fight, for this is not merely fighting. Some Christians, beloved, claim to be fighting for the faith or contending for the doctrines of our holy Christian faith, when in reality they're merely brawling, quarreling, and being contentious. That's not fighting. I'm sure you've witnessed as well as I have Christians who brawl. They quarrel. They're contentious. And they say, I'm fighting for the faith. No. Paul said it's a good fight. It all, it all lays on how we fight this fight, beloved. It's not just merely fighting. Paul says it's a good fight. It's important we understand that. Fight we must. But biblically, we don't set the terms of this fight. And many Christians do. Remember James, he said, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. I'm getting ahead of myself, but a pastor is not to be a brawler. A wrangler. You know what a wrangler is? It's also a cowboy. Isn't that strange? In Texas, a cow, it's a wrangler. <gasps> a brawler. Why didn't he not, not to be a brawler? Quarrelsome person. That's not how you fight the good fight. You don't quarrel. Why do Christians believe they're fighting the good fight of faith when they can condemn people, criticize their character, slander them? That's not a good fight. We don't win the battle. We don't win the fight by using worldly carnal methods. We don't set the terms for fighting. The Scripture does. And Paul said it's a good fight. You can fight without being contentious. You can fight without quarreling. You can fight without brawling. And yet we see Christians doing that all the time, professing that they're contending for the faith. No, Paul said it's a good fight. It's not just merely any fight. It's a good fight. What Proverbs says in 22, verse 24 to 25, make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. And with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Proverbs 29, 22 says, an angry man stirreth up strife. Isn't that true? An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. As Christians, we ought to learn these things. When we get in conversations or debates with other believers about anything, even doctrine, let it always be done in a spirit of Christ-likeness, not quarrelsome, not in anger, not furious, not brawling. When that begins to happen, it just stirreth up strife. Paul said it's a good fight, and I, and I want you to understand that. It's not just merely any fight. Okay, good, this gives me the right to... No, it's a good fight, Paul said. It's a good fight. If a bishop is not to be a brawler, according to Paul and Timothy, then surely this is not the behavior worthy of any Christian, not just a preacher. Don't be a brawler. Fight we must. But don't be a brawler. But there's another thing about this fight. Paul declares to be a good fight to be fought. There's a fight to be fought. Listen to me. Many Christians today attempt to shun or shy away from this word fighting. We've come into a generation now to where Christians are trying to be tolerant with everyone, even sin. They, they give you the belief that if, unless you're loving and kind and merciful and patient and all those things, 
and not fighting, you're a better Christian. You need to learn and love and just actually condone anything and everything. Love is the key. No, Paul says there's a fight to be fought. Many Christians have lost their fight. Paul said, I've fought a good fight. But many shy away from this. Not only because it intimidates or possibly frightens them, and Paul dealt with this in Timothy in chapter 1, when he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of sound mind. Paul, or Timothy, was timid, according to Scripture. In many ways, he was kind of shy. Paul kind of brings him out of that. It says, Timothy, God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of courage and a sound mind. Beloved, there is a fight to be fought. And I fear the church today in many ways have given up that fight. They've lost that spirit of fighting the good fight. But also because many have distorted this divine truth and have taken the good fight out of Christianity. There's no fight anymore. Paul says, I fight. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11 to 16. Look what Paul exhorts Timothy here. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Those are good things. Fight the good fight of faith. How can I do that if I'm following after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness? These things don't excuse or do away with a fighting spirit. In the shadow of all that, Paul encourages Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge, listen to this, in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot. What commandment? All those things and fighting the good fight. Keep Keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potent of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light, which no man can approach us, whom no man, have, uh, no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor, power, and everlasting. Amen. And what a strong exhortation. He said, I, I, I encourage you, keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, but fighting the good fight of faith. It's a good fight. It's a good fight. Now let me explain something about this fight, which was very confusing to me as a young Christian. Maybe to some of you right now. Follow closely, okay? This good fight of faith, of which Paul is talking is not fought occasionally, listen to me, or merely now and then. This fight is a continual, constant fight in this present life. What do you mean by that? When I was a young Christian, when I was a young believer, I thought something was wrong because of this constant uneasiness or urge to be alert and watch and pray. I always thought something was wrong with me because it felt like... I was constantly on the guard. I was constantly alert of what was going on around me. I was constantly uneasy as a Christian. 
It was like I was on constant alert, and I thought, something's wrong with me. People say I'm supposed to have joy, and we are, and we do. People say I'm supposed to have peace in Christ, and I'm supposed to be content. And all those things were present, but there was in me a constant alertness that I could not describe. I always felt as though there was an uneasiness about me and around me. When I went to work, when I woke up in the morning, when I went to the job, on the weekends, when I was home, there was this constant awareness that it's like I'm on alert status all the time. This is the constant fighting. This is a good fight. Listen to me. Christians Christians have forsaken this or ignored this. Let me give you a, an idea of what I'm talking about. I looking, there's a guy at our nursing home, 91 years old, and he was on the USS Curtis um, uh, right after Pearl Harbor. And he, that's the ship that went out to the, uh, um, what do you call them, them islands, Marshall Islands. And they had all the crew get up on the deck of the ship and stand while they set off the nuclear bomb so they could see the results of the nuclear bomb on humans. They were guinea pigs. That's what our government did. They were guinea pigs. He survived that. And he talks about it all the time. He talks about the flash. He said, I've never seen a light so bright in all my life. He said, that's why I don't have any hair. A lot of men on my ship died of cancer. He's 91 years old, and he survived that. But when you're a soldier in war, in Vietnam, for example, my uncle was in Vietnam, there was always a constant alertness about him. Why? He was in enemy territory. You couldn't let down your guard. You're always aware of what's going on. You let down your guard, it cost you life. My uncle said, you always slept with one eye open. And I got to thinking about that in this text. And I got to thinking, that is the uneasiness God puts in a Christian. This world is not my home. This world lieth in wickedness. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil roameth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. You know that uneasiness in the believer, that constant uneasiness we have, is this fight. We should be thankful it's there. <laughs> because when it's not, we're too at ease in the world. We're too comfortable with it. We're letting down our guard. I'm telling you, it's such a blessing for me when God opened my eyes to this, this uneasiness I felt. It was as though God saying, no, I impart that unto every child of God. I give him this uneasiness of this world, of the wickedness around you, of the devil. You're fighting all the time. If it's not Satan, if it's not Satan, then it's the world. If it's not the world, it's your own lust. We're constantly living in this state of alertness as Christians. If you're walking with God, I emphasize that. If you're not, that's why we have so often this spirit of uneasiness, alertness about us. It's not that anything's wrong, but everything's right. One thing a soldier desired in wartime was to see the end of it or his deployment back home so that when he came back home, he could rest and relax. He wasn't tense. You know why they got PTSD? That's why. Because they're so on constant alert over there. I pray some Christians get some spiritual PTSD. This world's not our home. We become too comfortable in it. We don't have that spirit of uneasiness, of alertness anymore. We're comfortable with the world. We're comfortable with our lives. 
We're not aware anymore that we live in a world that lieth in wickedness. The world hateth us. We shall suffer tribulations and persecutions. Those that live godly shall suffer persecutions and tribulations and afflictions in Christ. We become too easy. This is why we have this constant sense of alertness as Christians. It's not because something's wrong. It's because something's right. When you wake up in the morning, before you head out for the life of daily routine, and we pray, it's not most of our prayers, or hopefully in every prayer, there's a prayer that, God, you would guide us through the day we know not awaits us. When you've lived long enough, you know that you could begin the morning in prayer, sweet fellowship with Christ, enjoying the Word of God. And a few hours down the road, you get a phone call of a tragedy that shakes up your entire life. One that will forever change your life. A phone call. As you grow in Christ, you live in temperance. Your joy is tempered. Because you know you live in a world that hates you. You know there's an adversary that's seeking to devour you. And you know the evil and wickedness of your hearts. So there's that constant uneasiness about yourself. That's a good soldier. He's aware. He's alert. Beloved, we cannot rest now. We're not at home. We're not at home. We're still on the battlefield, and the war is still raging. And I'm not trying to make this some kind of gloom and doom message, but beloved, this is the Christian life in this world. This is not our home. It's not time to rest. When Paul says, my departure is at hand, in Second Timothy, you know what that means? He said, uh, and the time of my departure is at hand. You know what the word departure means? English. Not Greek or Hebrew. You can use that. I'm not trying to hit on those guys that much. But it just simply means an unyoking. I'm getting rid of that. I'm unyoking with this present life. And there's a crown waiting for me, which a righteous judge shall give me. Paul is now ready. Before in Philippians, he wasn't. For me to live as Christ and die as gain, to part with be as Christ would be much greater, but right now it's more needful that I stay. He doesn't have that tone anymore. Here in Second Timothy goes, no, I'm ready to be unyoked from this world. And I'll tell you why. Because I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. We're either fighting a fight, running the course, or keeping the faith. Huh? That's the Christian life in this world. And as much as Christians would like to forget that and think there's some time in this world where we can just kind of shut everything off and sit down and be comfortable and ease at the world and just kind of take a vacation from Christianity, that's not Christianity in the Scriptures. That's not biblical Christianity. There's no letting go in this warfare. There's no releasing of this warfare. You put your hands to the plow, you keep it on the plow until the Lord of the harvest comes back and relieves us, takes us home. We depart. We unyoke. Until then, keep your hand on the plow. Keep the status of your mind alert. Be sober, vigilant, watching, praying. Why? 
so that we, like Paul, could say, I have fought a good fight, I've finished my course, and I've kept the faith by the grace of God, and I'm ready, I'm ready to depart out of this world. Christians have become too at ease in this world, too familiar with it. We can't do that. We mustn't do that. You say, preacher, is there no joy? Oh, yes, there's joy. Is there no peace? Yes, there's peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Okay? For I've overcome the world. In me you shall have peace. In Christ we have peace. In both of these situations here, even in in chapter three, where he said, "But I, yea, he said that I've, uh, but all out of them all, the Lord delivered me. The Lord delivered me out of the." And later on, when he says, "All men's forsaking, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me." That's the only thing that counted for Paul. The Lord was with me. That's the only thing that counts. The Lord's with me. They put me in prison. They're going to cut off my head. All men have forsaken me, but that doesn't take away the joy I have in Christ. This is the divine truth, beloved. The world cannot or never will be able to comprehend or understand. Only the true believer who's come to know the things of Christ. He deplores this present world. He despises it. He's a pilgrim and a stranger. You know what a stranger is? Someone who dwells in a land without a home, without a abiding place. That's what we are. We're pilgrims and strangers. We don't belong here. And every step that we take towards eternity or the time of death, every step we take, there's opposition. And yet there's victory in Christ. I don't have time this morning to go any further into it, but I will later. I want to look at it more diligently, but this is a good fight Paul talked about. He's not beating the air. We'll look at that verse next week. That means he's not shadow boxing. He's not just you ever seen a shadow boxing. He's just beating the air. No, the fight is, <laughs> there's a purpose to it. There's a goal to it. There's a system to it. It's a good fight. Why is it a good fight? Because it's one that gives victory. It's one that gives us... <laughs> Satisfaction in Christ is one that... Why do you think Paul says in Ephesians, talk about the warfare? Put on the whole armor of God. It's a warfare. I know that we don't remember it very well. <clears throat> but um, it's a little different now with the uh, Iraq war and everything else. Though There's not much of a difference when the men and women came back. But you know, when the Second World War was at an end, we all remember the picture of the sailor kissing the woman there on the main street in New York. And then bred into our minds. When they finally surrendered and the war was over, the whole world was in celebration. Parades everywhere. Beloved, we're not at home. 
We're not at home. This world is not our home. God, give us grace to be reminded of that. It's not time to rest yet. It's coming. And just like then, it'll be even greater when we go home to our eternal rest and we see Christ. Then we shall rest. Until then, dearly beloved, let us, with Paul, fight a good fight. Let us finish our course, the one God's given us, and let us, by God's grace, keep the faith. Henceforth, because of that, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. There is a reward. May God give us grace to never get comfortable in this world, regardless of this modern idea amongst many professing Christians that in this world we'll have peace and prosperity. No, our peace and prosperity comes later. Now, we're militant. Now we fight the good fight. Finish the course. Keep the faith. Amen. That uneasiness. Pray that God never lets that go away. Pray that he keeps us in us. Always that alert status. Being aware. Conscious. Amen. May God help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now, Lord, that you take your word. Lord, encourage and help us, strengthen us. Father, I know in this day and age in which we live in, people have greatly distorted this divine truth. They say such a truth makes Christians unhappy, uncomfortable. Yet, God, I pray that you'd remind us the spiritual warfare that goes on around us. Dear God, we've let down our guards. We've taken ease in the height of the battle. Many of us, like the king of the Old Testament, when he was wounded, said, take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. Father, I pray that, Lord, you'd help us to look unto thee, to know what it is to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Help us, dear God, we pray with Paul to be able to say, I'm fighting a good fight. I want to finish my course. God, help me to keep the faith. Lord, give us, Father, we pray, the spirit of the Apostle Paul. Help us, Father, Lord God, to glorify you in all that we say and do. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.